Yo, what is happening, everybody? This is Austin coming at you with another episode of the Coffee Break Hems podcast. Today on the podcast, we are going to be continuing our Medicine Cabinet murder series, um, and we will be getting into that in just one sec, uh, but uh, I guess hint, hint on what we may be talking about today. But before we get into the podcast, um, did want to give out a couple announcements. Uh, there have been lots of requests as of late to develop some more reference cards or cheat sheets, if you will, um, on our website, and we have listened and come through for you guys. So two new things that are available um, on the website: we have our lab reference card. Uh, it is a uh, it's two four by six uh, double sided cheat sheets, if you will, and they give you full treatment pathways decision trees on all of your electrolyte disturbances, looking at hematology, coagulation, um, as well as anticoagulant reversal. So if you are looking for a quick reference sheet for all of your labs, including ABGs, uh, then head on over to the shop and get that. The second thing is that we had uh, a lot of requests to do a Hamilton-specific vent card. Um, historically, we've had the kind of more general vent card that is tailored more for people who work with the Revell or the Zoll uh, ventilator, but we have now added a Hamilton vent card as well and features walkthroughs on how to use CMV Plus as well as PCV Plus um, and all of the ancillary vent strategies therein. So head on over to the shop at kaisercpr.com that's k-i-s-e-r-c-p-r.com forward slash shop and get your copies of those reference cards today all right peeps so let's get into it so your case this afternoon is an interfacility transport for a 36 year old man significant smoking history but otherwise not a big history attached to him but he comes to the emergency department. Girlfriend actually brought him into the emergency department. Um, he was very tachypnic when he got there, respiratory rate in the 40s. He was altered, not really answering questions appropriately. The girlfriend at the bedside is kind of stating like, hey, he was fine yesterday morning. But um, the emergency department is starting to suspect maybe a sepsis case with him being a little confused. He's pretty tachypnic. They drew some labs and an ABG and found that the lactate came back at 3 they also found that his white blood cell count was elevated at 19, so they were like, yep, this has got to be sepsis, so they're starting to treat him accordingly. He's pretty hypotensive, and so they end up calling you guys to facilitate a transport. Now, when you arrive, you walk into the room, you assess the patient, you see that he was actually just intubated, which you were not aware of um, prior to the dispatch, but sounds like there was a little deterioration in his oxygen saturation and even further deterioration to his level of consciousness prior to your arrival. So the emergency department physician opted to intubate this patient. When you walk in the room, one thing that really stands out to you is that he has like clear audible crackles from the doorway when he is exhaling through that et tube you can hear bubbling in the et tube so he has significant pulmonary edema at the time and you're starting to think like this doesn't sound like sepsis like what how do people get se severe pulmonary edema in the first like 24 hours of sepsis this doesn't make any sense so you're assessing the et tube it looks pretty good you're assessing the vent settings and their respiratory rate seems to be a little bit slow, especially with the report you were given that his respiratory rate upon arrival was uh, only 40 or was up at 42. So you're cranking up the 
the respiratory rate on the vent, and you're taking a look at some of the vital signs here. Fairly hypotensive, blood pressure is only 89 over 40, despite being on 10 mics a minute of levofed. He's getting some IV fluids right now. Heart rate's up in the 120s, uh, and he is febrile on an esophageal temp probe at 101.2. His entitled CO2, after a few minutes of you messing with the respiratory rate, is down at about 28 or so. When we take a look at the rest of the labs, we see that he has a sodium of 142, he has a chloride of 110, and remember that that sodium and chloride difference is so important with acid-base balance, right? So those, your sodium and chloride should be approximately 38 apart, and we see a sodium of 142 with a chloride of 110. So those are only 32 apart. And so... Because it is narrower than 38, we know that we're going to see some type of metabolic acidosis when we look at our new ABG, but hopefully most of that acidosis is because of this quote-unquote hyperchloremia. We do notice that he has a potassium of only 3.4, which is pretty concerning to us because uh, we should see more of a hyperkalemia if this patient's acidotic, uh, but we're seeing a borderline hypokalemia, so we need to think about replacing that potassium prior to leaving the facility. We see the CO2 also on that, uh, on that basic metabolic panel is only 9, which is not good, right? Because we know CO2 and bicarb are essentially the same thing when you're looking at it on the chemistry. And so that CO2 level should be 22 to 26, but it's only 9. So we have a significant metabolic acidosis currently. You also do notice that the BUN and creatinine are elevated at 39 and 1.5 respectively. You're talking to the girlfriend, you're like, hey, does he have any like kidney issues? Has he been sick recently? You know, yada, yada. You're trying to figure out why this guy's so septic. And she's like, nope, 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 nope. Like he was totally fine until yesterday. He's just been complaining of a headache for the last few days. When you look at his ABG, now that you've drawn it, we have an ABG, uh, excuse me, we have a pH of 7.16. We have a CO2 of 25. We have a bicarb of 8, which that is not good. When we look at the lactate, we see that the lactate is still only 3. And there's something in your mind that's like, none of this makes sense. Like, he was fine yesterday. If he was septic, we should have some sort of source of infection with this guy. But his bicarb sucks, and his lactate's only three. Like, where is all of this acidosis coming from? Where, where are these acids coming from? We take a look at the base excess on the ABG, and we see that the base excess is negative 18. Now, I talked about base excess a bunch like two years ago. Cruise back to that episode. I think I was a little childish when I named that episode, and so it's called like the badassery of base excess or something like that. But uh, base excess is incredibly important when you're diagnosing different acidoses because it helps you to not miss an acidosis that's occurring. But when we look at that base excess of negative 18, what that means is that if we added... 18 millimoles per liter of base of, of something alkaline inside of that solution, then the pH would go back to being 7.4 and would be perfect. So what it's also saying is that we are we have 
18 extra acids, 18 extra millimoles per liter of acid in this solution, which is why the pH is so sucky. But when we're looking at our sepsis diagnosis, meaning looking at the lactate, we see that our lactate is only three. So if we minus that lactate out from our base deficit, essentially from that negative base excess, then we're left with 15 mystery acids that we haven't found yet. So now we need to start putting some things together. We have a significant acidosis. We have a patient who came in severely tachypnic and altered, no real medical history, blood sugars 160. So we're not thinking it's some new onset diabetic. We need to get more information on this guy. So your partner goes to the girlfriend and is like, hey, has he had a cough? Has he been constipated? Has he been having diarrhea or vomiting? Has he complained of any painful urination? And she's like, no, the only thing that he has been complaining of is he's had this brutal headache for like the last week and he can't, he hasn't been able to sleep. You're starting to prod quite a bit more. Your partner's starting to prod quite a bit more. The girlfriend weirdly seems pretty reluctant to give you guys like a bunch of information. Uh, one look at the girlfriend and one look at the patient. It's kind of making sense maybe why they're not wanting to talk to you a bunch. Um, but you press the matter anyway. And you're like, has he been taking anything for this headache that he's been having? She's like, yeah, he's been taking some medication, some pills like every hour, two hours, three hours, like a handful of pills at a time to try to get this headache to go away. And you're like, has he been doing this for the full week? And she's like, yeah, he's been taking them like every, you know, hour or two for the last week. He's gone. He's actually gone through like two Costco bottles um, in the last seven days or so because this headache has just been kind of killing him. And he's been having this like really brutal, um, like ringing in his ears that he can't get to go away. And you're like, got it. Ding, ding, ding. He's febrile. He's tachypnic. He has severe pulmonary edema. He's hypotensive. He's confused. That sounds like aspirin. You couple that with the fact that he looks like he has an acute kidney injury and his GFR is super low. We need to draw a tox on this guy. Not surprisingly, the salicylate level comes back at 135 milligrams per deciliter, which is more than plenty to be a fatal dose. And all of his other tox screen, except for marijuana, comes back negative. And now we need to switch our focus. Like, this is not sepsis. This is an aspirin overdose. Fortunately, this crew was able to discern this. And this is a real call. This is a real case study. Um, all of these numbers are all completely accurate. Um, you can actually find this case in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. Um, and thankfully, this crew was able to discern that this was a tox case and not a sepsis case. An acidosis with flash pulmonary edema, a non-cardiac pulmonary edema, like we got to be thinking tox issues. So fortunately, the focus of care was able to be switched. And so what is the focus of care now that we know that it's an aspirin overdose? Well, obviously, we still need to continue supporting their respirations. So we need to maintain ventilation with this person. We need to get this person to a place where he can be dialyzed because um, hemodyna hemodialysis really is the, I guess, the definitive treatment, if you will, for this aspirin overdose. But 
in the meantime, during this transport phase, what we need to focus on doing is we need to start alkalinizing the urine. One thing that people forget when they talk about medications and really specifically with aspirin because aspirin is a legit acid right because it is acetyl salicylic acid and so one thing with acids is that acids like to go to bases which is something that pharmaceutical companies take huge advantage of because when we take a medication that we want to be absorbed in the stomach we make it acidic so the medication is acidic, our stomach acid is acidic, and so relative to our blood, our blood is very alkaline compared to our stomach acid. And so the medications can very easily be pushed from the stomach into the bloodstream and it can have this absorption occur in the stomach. Which is why you never want to be taking antacids or other alkalinizing agents into your stomach at the same time you're taking other medications because you'll have malabsorption. They won't start to absorb until later on in the duodenum or even later because it just can't get out of your GI tract if it is an alkaline environment because acids want to travel toward bases. So when you're treating an aspirin overdose, when you alkalinize the urine, you are much more likely to draw those acids into the urine and excrete them so that way the salicylate level starts to fall. If you keep the, the urine really acidic, a pH you know below 7 especially, um, then you're going to have a much slower excretion rate. And so the key is to just alkalinize that urine and we should improve the salicylate excretion until we can get that patient to dialysis. And we've talked a bunch about how to alkalinize your blood or alkalinize your urine. And that is very simply with a bicarbonate drip. Do like a 1.2% drip, meaning put 3 amps of bicarb into a liter bag of saline and then drip it in over about 1 to 3 hours. Now, as long as you are supporting this patient's blood pressure, as long as you are supporting their respirations, nothing needs to happen incredibly fast with an aspirin overdose because we need to just get this person to hemodialysis. And so we're not pushing bicarb in this patient. Arguably, that's going to make matters much worse. We are simply going to give that bicarb drip over like one to three hours until we can get them to dialysis. We have to make sure that as we give fluids, we should be adding 20 or 40 of K into these uh, solutions as well, especially keeping in mind that this hypokalemia that the patient currently has is only going to get worse as soon as we start to resolve that blood pH, right? As soon as the hydrogen concentration goes down in the blood, potassium goes back into the cells. And so as you fix acidosis, you will always cause hypokalemia or a reduction in your potassium. So if you already have hypokalemia, you need to add potassium immediately as you are correcting the acidosis. The one big key feature that really helped this crew key in to what the issue was is that they paid attention to the base excess on that ABG and they ran through it in their minds. They're like, okay, so we're looking at the sodium and chloride. Those are only 32 apart. They should be 38 apart. So there's six narrower 38 minus 32 it's six narrower than it should be those six millimoles per liter of acid can be taken off of the base excess so we were at a base excess of negative 18 now we're only at a base excess of negative 12. you also account for the lactate that is inside of that solution of three 
and now we're down to a base excess of negative nine. And knowing that they had nine millimoles per liter of mystery acids swimming around in the body is what prompted them to to start to look toward a toxicological issue where they found that salicylate level of whatever it was, 135. So I thought it would be nice to kind of talk about aspirin, talk about COX inhibitors anyway, um, and hopefully key you guys into some of the symptoms that you may be seeing with especially an aspirin overdose. So we got to get a little bit into the physiology here. So all the things that your body does when you have some sort of injury or insult, all the, the fever, the swelling, the bronchoconstriction, whatever it is, the GI upset, it all begins in your cell wall, actually. It all begins in that phospholipid bilayer of all 25 trillion cells that you have inside of your body. When you have some sort of injury to those cells, what happens is that this enzyme, this phospholipase A2, or just PLA2, releases arachidonic acid from that phospholipid bilayer. Arachidonic acid is essentially the grandfather of all inflammatory processes in the body. But if you imagine arachidonic acid being kind of at the top of a tree, essentially, or really the trunk of a tree, I guess you would say, going up from the trunk of the tree, it starts to split in various directions. And so the first two ways that it can split is that it can split down the cox side or it can split down the leukotriene side. And when you say split down the cox side, you're essentially saying prostaglandin side, but I think that's maybe a little bit beyond the scope of what we're talking about today. But leukotrienes, or your LOX pathway, is what creates a lot of pulmonary things going on. It can cause bronchoconstriction. It can cause additional inflammation in the lungs. And so that's why we say if you give NSAIDs, especially COX-1 inhibitors like aspirin, um, to somebody when you're blocking the COX pathway, the cyclooxygenase pathway, then arachidonic acid only converts to leukotrienes and it causes bronchoconstriction. And so that's predominantly why we don't like giving aspirin to an asthmatic because if you block COX-1, then when you have anything going on in your body, arachidonic acid only produces leukotrienes and you get worsening of asthma symptoms. But let's primarily focus on your COX-1 and COX-2, your cyclooxygenase 1 and cyclooxygenase 2. Both of them produce prostaglandins, PGE and PGI, uh, specifically PGE2 and PGI2, and those are responsible for lots of things. COX-2 is responsible for all of the like flu-like symptoms that we end up getting, like fever and swelling and fatigue and all of those things. Whereas and COX-2, that's only present in the body. It's only present in your cells if you have some sort of injury in them. Whereas COX-1 is present all the time in every cell. It is constantly being expressed in your cells because COX-1 is responsible for really like a bunch of stuff, but three big, big things. First and foremost, your PGE1, or excuse me, your PGE2 and your PGI2, your prostaglandins, have a huge key role in your renal perfusion. And so if you block COX-1, meaning you block the production of those specific prostaglandins, you're going to have a reduced 
renal perfusion. So when with COX-1 inhibitors like aspirin, you end up getting acute kidney injuries or even renal failure. The next thing that it does is COX-1 producing your two prostaglandins is responsible for increasing mucus production in your GI tract. And so when you block it, you get reduced mucus production in your GI tract, giving you an increased risk of peptic ulcers, GI bleeding, all of that good stuff. As you know, we've always been told aspirin increases GI bleeding or increases your risk of peptic ulcers, and that is why, because PGE2 and PGI2, your two prostaglandins, are responsible for increased mucus production, and if you block your COX-1 um, activity or, or your expression inside of those cells, then you have a decrease in mucus increased risk of bleeding and ulcers. The thing that most people are familiar with when it comes to COX-1 though is that COX-1 stimulates the release of thromboxin A2 inside of our cells. And if you break that word down, thromboxin, meaning thrombo, meaning thrombus, then we know that it does a few things. Thromboxin A2 is simply written generally as TXA2, which is a bummer because it makes people confuse it with TXA inside of our body. And they do, um, interestingly, kind of similar-ish things, and <laughs> meaning that they promote clotting, but, uh, but they do very different mechanisms. And so what thromboxin does is it primarily is responsible for platelet aggregation inside of your body, but TXA2 along with COX-1 also promote vasoconstriction. Um, it is the primary vascular inflammatory agent during an injury. So what kinds of symptoms would you see if you are selectively and aggressively blocking cyclooxygenase 1 or COX-1? You'll see a decrease in renal perfusion, so acute kidney injuries. You'll see a, re a reduced thromboxin A2, so you'll see vasodilation or hypotension, and you will see an increased risk for bleeding because platelets can no longer aggregate. In fact, aspirin is unlike any other real inhibitor in that it can be reversed and the patient will immediately start clotting again. Aspirin is not that way. When aspirin interacts with your COX-1 inhibitor, with your COX-1, it actually permanently inhibits those specific platelets from aggregating together. And so it takes days after you stop aspirin therapy for your body to regenerate more platelets that are functional because when you take aspirin, those specific platelets are dysfunctional and they will not aggregate together. Um, so aspirin's kind of a tricky one for anticoagulation um, or for antiplatelet therapy because it, it lasts for a long time. And then the other thing that you'll see is you'll see a significant GI upset because of that reduced GI and gastric mucus production. So you'll see things like peptic ulcers or GI bleeding or just general GI upset because of the reduced mucus production. But what about some of the other symptoms? Well, the first one, metabolic acidosis, that one should be fairly obvious as in that aspirin's technical name is acetylsalicylic acid, so it's going to produce a metabolic acidosis in your body, specifically a high anion gap acidosis. You can also think of a high anion gap acidosis, very similarly to the way that you think of a, a metabolic acidosis with a very 
negative base excess. That's essentially saying the same thing. Whenever somebody has a metabolic acidosis, they are going to have a compensatory respiratory alkalosis. And so you're going to see those patients being very, very tachypnic to try to compensate for that. But what about that lactate? What about that confounding value lactate that we saw on this patient? He had a lactate that was marginally elevated. It wasn't anything crazy, which is really what helped us key into the fact that this was not a septic patient. But what we have to understand about aspirin is that it is an uncoupler of your electron transport chain inside of your mitochondria. And so what it does is it makes it to where your body cannot utilize oxygen incredibly well inside the cells. Now, this only happens in high doses, in, in toxic doses, but whenever you force your cells to, um, to have anaerobic metabolism, then you're going to get a higher lactate level. And so when you have an aspirin overdose, do not be surprised if you see a lactate. And then the third and final thing is that A, you have vasodilation, you have an irritation to all of the GI and respiratory systems with the reduction in their mucus production, and so you're going to get irritation and inflammation in your lungs. Additionally, because you are only now producing leukotrienes instead of prostaglandins because you're blocking COX-1, you're going to end up with a lot of bronchial issues, which is why the most common cause of death from an aspirin overdose is severe pulmonary edema. Never forget that. And that, I think, is all I've got for aspirin. Aspirin is a little bit of an easier one. It's one that we're hopefully pretty familiar with. Um, I'm interested to hear back from each and every single one of you to see if we would like to continue doing more of these medicine cabinet murders or not. I thought that this call was quite fascinating, especially because it um, took a transport team to change the trajectory of the care with this particular patient. Um, and aspirin really is kind of a fascinating medication in all the things that it does. Um, as always, if you have any questions or would like to reach out to me, you can reach me on Instagram at coffeebreakhems. You can also reach me via email at kaisercpr at gmail.com. That's K-I-S-E-R-C-P-R at gmail.com. And I'll see you guys in two weeks.